I've never done a podcast before, but I have done a bit of audio editing, as you probably, for that walkthrough video that you saw. Did you do that yourself? Yeah, I did that myself. Well, that is so cool. See, that is something that I don't know how to do with like the 3D visual effect. I'm pretty sure architects, you guys know how to do all that. But not not that, everyone knows how to do that. That one took, I think, two weeks, maybe three weeks for the computer to process the file. So wow. I, I couldn't use my computer for weeks. Yeah, wow. Yeah, yeah wow. It, it was a lot. It was definitely a lot. I didn't know if I would finish my project because I was just, you know, I had like five weeks left in the semester and it was taking three weeks to load the file. So, well, welcome to the show. Now you. you graduated with your thesis and architecture degree, and now you're studying your master's in real estate at our favorite school. And I use Shaq. So welcome to the show. Another family member of Shaq. Yay. Thank you. It's great to be here. And would you like to introduce us today's topic? And then we can get started. If you have your picture, we can put it out in the screen sharing too. Sure. I can pull up a picture. I don't think I had one ready, but I can get that. <laughs> no worry. My podcast is pretty casual. Why don't we start with a self-introduction first? Right. I'll start with the self-introduction. I'm Baxter Hankin. I went to architecture school at Syracuse University. I graduated in 2020, started studying real estate development a few months later in a master's degree program. And currently I'm also working as an intern architect. And this presentation and discussion is going to be about the different elements that go into creating quality urbanism and my undergraduate thesis project, which was the design for a new neighborhood in Syracuse, New York, as sort of a frame of reference to explain some of those ideas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm just taking a moment here to pull up an image to share. No it won't take three weeks, right? Right, it will not. It's what makes here. you fall in love with urban planning? And why do you say human focus? Right. So um, first I'll answer the first part of that question. So what made me fall in love with ur urban planning and urban design is sort of the city that I did my undergraduate program in. I studied in Syracuse, New York, and it's a very Rust Belt city. It's certainly seen better days. It's had a lot of history of governments tearing apart neighborhoods, running highways through them, kind of dividing the city into unusable, unpleasant pieces. And by the time I was there, I, I was living in the middle of this. You could see like bits and pieces of the old great city that used to be there. And then between them, it was just this like vast, desolate landscape. So I was really interested in how to use design in situations like that one to uh, really try to bring a place back to what it used to be. And I was also interested in it from the perspective of what made those places originally great cities in the first place and why don't they feel like they are anymore. You know what this reminds me? And I'm sure your friend with DK, 
Yes, and he was a guest on my show. He talked about the development history of New York City. And in one of the sessions, he talked about there was a highway plan within Manhattan. And there was a book. I don't remember, but everybody should go listen to that episode. You you might be thinking of, I don't quite remember which book he referenced in the episode, but you may be thinking of um, the, the Power Broker. Not the power broker. It's another another urban planning book. The Life and Death of Great American Cities. Yes. That that is one of my favorite. That's one of my favorite books as well. It's it's fantastic. And it really shows how uh, activists in a time when urban planning was very anti-urban, that certain activists really saved much of New York City from being torn apart although they didn't succeed in other places. Mm-hmm. Yes. You know what? Maybe we should do a book club episode about that book. I haven't read it. I know it's very famous. I'm still reading the book, Learning from Las Vegas, but we should do a book club episode about that book. And maybe I can invite DK to be on the show again. That would be great. And I'm also familiar with Learning from Las Vegas. Uh, the authors of, of that book, I, I sort of reference a lot of similar ideas in my thesis projects, but framed in a very different way. So I, I'm going to share an image for those of you watching. <laughs> so what you see here is the neighborhood that I lived in in Syracuse looks right like right now. It's right between the downtown to the bottom left corner and the university, which is to the right of the image. And in the middle, you have lots of vacant lots, parking lots, a building every once in a while, highways cutting through the neighborhood. And the city is currently working with the state in planning stages of removing this highway and restoring the the street grid and reconnecting neighborhoods. So I did a thesis project in my final year of architecture school that centered around transforming this barren landscape back into a very urban, connected, dense, walkable, and vibrant neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Connectivity. Yes, it's it's all it's all about con- connectivity. There's various pockets of great places in that city and many other cities in America that don't add up to more than the, the sum of their parts because they're not properly connected to each other. Mm-hmm. And one of the topics you told me that you wanted to talk about is the history. Right. I can, I can touch a, a little bit upon the history. There's a lot of different ways to look at the history of urban planning, but the way that I see it is there's always a back and forth throughout history in different time periods between planners who believe that things should be designed sort of from the top down with grand sweeping gestures that are very uh, geometric and perfect. And you see this in time periods from ancient Rome to the Renaissance to the 1900s. And then you have other eras of urban planning and design that really are more about the individual buildings and public spaces and various other elements of the city being designed in a less controlled way by many different participants. And they sort of 
add up to a city that is much more interesting and dynamic and irregular. And you see those kind of places created in pre-Roman civilization, medieval civilizations, sort of after the Renaissance and until the 1900s. And throughout much of the history of urban planning and design, the top-down approach to designing cities was still very much urban. But then when you hit the 1900s, specifically the 1920s, the late 1920s and afterwards, you start seeing architects and urban planners who are thinking of the city less as a complicated network of interconnections that is and should be messy and complex. And they start to see the city as something that is a machine and should be refined to a perfect science. And that's when urban planners started to sort of dissect city and turn it into something else. They started to tear apart neighborhoods and replace it with things that uh, seemed more logical. They started to, instead of creating windy and more dynamic grids of streets, they started to create more regular street grids with identical blocks uh, across the city, regardless of top- topography or waterfront areas. And additionally, they began to do things like run highways through the center of cities to turn it into a machine for traffic flow. And that really started to tear apart lots of places. And that's really what happened in the city of Syracuse, as it did across the entire country. There was uh, federal funding available for basically tearing apart pieces of cities that were deemed to be slums and replacing it with things that were newer and more seemingly up-to-date. And there was also plenty of money, federal money, for building highway infrastructure. Many of the promises made by these projects didn't really materialize, so you ended up having huge swaths of cities that were torn down and either replaced with dysfunctional places that didn't have the intricacies of the city that existed before them, or in some cases, nothing replaced what used to be there at all. And it just ended up being vacant land for decades to come. And that's where this project comes in, where the city of Syracuse and many other places across the country are looking to sort of reverse reverse these decisions of the past and where urban planning are emerging to replace the modernist era that was very anti-urban and instead is starting to return, at least in part, to traditional strategies of organizing cities. Mm-hmm. So when you were talking about the history I was Googling about urban planning, 1920s, and I can share my screen with you. You see these buildings on the right-hand side? I'm very familiar with that project, yes. Oh, let me zoom in. So this reminds me post-war affordable housing projects, and it just looked like these very structured mid-to-high-rise buildings, one right next to each other. They just couldn't find a way to manage these type of affordable housing projects. Right. There's a variety of reasons that these uh, were unsuccessful. 
for a bit of context, this project, let's stop on this image here. So this project was a plan by the famous Swiss-French architect, Le Corbusier, to demolish the center of the city of Paris and replace it with this very uniform plan of towers with lots of space between them, parks between them, highways dividing the city. And there's a variety of reasons this isn't uh, successful. Um, in the United States, mainly one of the reasons it wasn't successful has to do with funding, not necessarily the urban planning itself, although the urban planning was very much to blame in many ways, but certain areas that are designed in this manner, such as Stuyvesant Town today, yeah. um, are not really complete failures as most of the other places designed in this way. But a few of the problems with this type of planning is, first of all, the very rigid top-down and uniform approach to this design creates all of these buildings that are exactly the same. They are sort of, they're massive. There's fewer options for different buildings to live in because there's a few large buildings instead of many smaller buildings. So the diversity of the buildings that makes up the neighborhoods is, is much less. And something that you get from that is less diversity and opportunities for people to open businesses and storefronts, less diverse and expansive groups of owners of properties. And additionally, there's major issues with safety and community and interconnectivity and collaboration because since the building, the edges of the building don't hug the edge of the streets, you have these massive areas of open space between the buildings. So people are not in as close of quarters when they're walking down the street and they don't really interact with each other the same way. So they, there's not really uh, the same level of community knowledge spillovers and a lack of visibility, which causes safety issues. And, and another main issue is that many of these planners, because they wanted to boil down the idea of the city to a science, they thought that they knew exactly how much of each type of use and demographic the city needed. They thought they knew the city needs this proportion of residential units and this proportion of storefronts and this proportion of office space. And they were largely incorrect in a lot of those ways. Uh, when this design was incorporated into New York City, there often would not be enough storefronts and they would tear down a neighborhood that was sort of struggling, but had a lot of mom and pop businesses. And then they would replace it with public housing developments that would have maybe like one corner store on the entire property. And not only were residents displaced and the communities were torn apart, but people didn't have anywhere to go to buy things or reopen their businesses, really. This means that the city is made up of fewer sort of large buildings instead of many more smaller buildings. It creates a resiliency issue because there's a lack of diversification. And I've actually been looking into that issue in an academic paper that I currently have going through the uh, peer review process that shows that neighborhoods in New York City during the pandemic that had fewer buildings that were larger footprint instead of the same density 
with many more buildings that were smaller footprint had larger increases in business vacancies during this economic shock. So this would have caused a similar sort of issue. Yeah. And I'm sorry, my podcast never follows the agenda. I just came up with, uh, I remember something about affordable housing. So I just asked that question, but you gave us a great answer. Thank you so much, Baxter. Thank you. And I, I think this really does sort of stick to the agenda in many ways, because going back to the project that, that I was working on as my thesis, the reason that the city had been torn apart and there were vast, once vibrant neighborhoods that had become desolate was because they decided to use that same kind of planning found in that image of Le Corbusier's plan for Paris. And it was unsuccessful. It, it really decreased the vibrancy of the city and uprooted the communities and individuals who were very underprivileged and at risk. And in the particular case of Syracuse, it was mostly non-white communities and Jewish communities as well that were displaced in this action. Isn't it, there's a movie about this type of housing? I remember I saw it in high school in the history class. It, okay, I need to find. I need to find that. I'm not. I'm not familiar exactly with. Uh, with was, what you're. It was like a. It was like a documentary. Yeah, there. There's been a number of documentaries on this, but I think one of the biggest issues that came up in, in that era of urban planning, especially in the United States. Mm-hmm is while all of these non-white communities were being displaced and having their neighborhoods torn down and then sold to developers, or sometimes those uh, neighborhoods sat empty, or sometimes they would be replaced with permanent complexes. At the same time, these displaced residents didn't really have a place to go afterwards because the suburbs where many people were sort of moving in this time period, had restrictive covenants that prevented really anyone who wasn't white from moving in. So they were in a really tough position because their neighborhoods were torn down and they weren't allowed to move anywhere else. Sorry, go ahead. No, sorry, you go ahead. What is that? Pert Igno? Pruitt Igo? Yes, Pruitt Igo in St. Louis, right? Yes, it's in St. Louis. That's correct. Yes, there's definitely a documentary of that. And I think also one of the main issues with this kind of planning that, you know, goes beyond how it sort of poorly creates a social environment that really doesn't set people up to thrive because it's not the vibrant dynamic neighborhood that was adaptable that they were in before it's sort of centrally managed and kind of bland and not able to change but additionally the element that i was talking about relating to resilience where a lot of these communities that are designed in this era in the 1900s is structured in a way where instead of having a lot of smaller buildings that are owned by different individuals and companies that sort of some of them fail, but they all fail at different times. So it's not like the the whole neighborhood having an issue at once. Many of these developments were owned by, were very 
massive and were owned by one developer or one governmental entity. And when that one developer or um, one governmental entity no longer puts in the effort or has the resources to take care of the community and upkeep the properties, the entire neighborhood is destroyed because it is the whole neighborhood. So this kind of urban planning extended for a lot of the 1900s. And then in the end of the 1900s, maybe around the 70s or 80s, there started to be a significant amount of backlash to this type of planning. People started to realize that it was unsuccessful. It wasn't working. It was creating communities that uh, had more social and economic issues than the communities that they replaced. And it was really creating a safety issue and a lack of vibrancy. So that comes to uh, a lot of where I get my particular ideas of urban planning and design. Back in, I think my sophomore year of uh, college, there was uh, a guest lecturer named Jeff Speck. And he was talking about a lot of these ideas and creating quality urban design. And, and it really clicked with me and it was something I wanted to pursue. So I started looking into the organization he was a part of, which is the Congress for New Urbanism. And really since the 70s and 80s, they've sort of had a different way of doing things where they look back at what worked about pre-war urban planning and design before the 1930s. And they try to bring those successful attributes into the present day and really create a healthy, vibrant neighborhoods and cities that are walkable and, and uh, really have a very strong appeal to human nature in terms of their design and are resilient and so many other things. Uh, and sort of, sorry about that background noise. No worries. I don't know if but uh, a lot of the ideas from that organization started to uh, shape my own ideas about urban planning and design. And that's where I ended up creating an urban design project as my undergraduate thesis in architecture school, where most of the projects were more related to maybe an individual building or something like that. And I break down quality urbanism into a few different categories. There's resilience, there's sustainability, and there's human experience. And I could talk a bit about a bit more about those if if you'd like. So yes, please, because you know I'm not an architect, so I would like to learn a little bit more about each category, please. Great. So I will start with the human experience of cities. So. In successful urbanism, uh, sort of to create a human experience where people feel comfortable uh, in spaces, they feel comfortable walking around instead of feeling need to drive from one place to another. There has to be adequate infrastructure for sure. The buildings really uh, go all the way up to the edge of the, the sidewalk and they form a wall that surrounds public spaces and streets like turning streets and parks into outdoor rooms with four walls around them. And uh, you can see this in most older cities, such as I, I'm right here in, in New York City right now. And that really is a theme through most of the city 
and it really makes the city much more walkable. In addition, public space is very important, creating variety in uh, type and scale and shape of different public spaces for different uses, appealing to different people, but making sure that the public spaces in general don't get too large. Otherwise, the space can become overwhelming and unusable. And then in terms of strategies for designing themselves, uh, a lot of different designers have, have different ideas that they like to consider in creating optimal uh, urban space. My two favorites are called Parallax and the Picturesque. I can describe an easy to understand visual okay. instead yes. of describing the concept itself. So the idea of Parallax is that um, as you uh, move uh, through space, objects that are closer to you versus further away are going to appear to move at different speeds. So if you design with that idea in mind, then you're going to create an experience where you're walking through the space and every step you with every step you take, you're constantly looking at things from a new angle and discovering new things about the space. So I would compare New York City and, and Boston in this circumstance and the idea of parallax would be more like walking around the old windy streets of Boston, where around every turn, you're discovering something new. And in contrast, sometimes walking down the streets of uh, Manhattan due to the very regular grid can feel a little monotonous and every block is a bit the same. And you're not necessarily discovering new things and you're never, you know, walking around a corner and suddenly you have a framed view of, you know, some important building or public space in front of you. Everything is always off to the side. So that's one of the elements that I like to use to make urban space more interesting. And then another idea is the picturesque, which is really creating a balance between uniformity and irregularity in terms of design. If everything is too much of the same, it's going to be too boring. If everything is, you know, not cohesive enough, it's going to be chaotic. And the picturesque is kind of creating, I would say, almost a, a nostalgic and emotional kind of midpoint between those two. And you were talking a bit about learning from Las Vegas. And this is one of the ideas he frames it a little bit differently, but this is one of the ideas that Robert Venturi starts to pick up from Las Vegas, where many other places at the time were designing kind of like generic boxy glass buildings that, you know, no matter which way you look at them, they're always the same. You're never going to discover something new. But in Las Vegas, you have these constantly changing perspectives and lots of different layers of signage and, and buildings that are all very different and lots of different shapes intermixed with each other. And as you move through that space, similarly as how you move through old urban spaces that are more historic, but are also much more irregular than Manhattan street grid, you're constantly discovering new things, which really can keep the pedestrian very engaged and interested in the space. And that dynamic can be found in parts of New York City as well, such as, for example, the financial district, where 
all the streets are irregular. You walk around a corner and you're seeing something you didn't see before because it was hidden around the bend of a curve. Some other important elements of the human experience of urban space, one of them is uh, fine-grained urbanism. And this is something that gets very lost in current architecture and development that really has a lot of value. And it's all about creating a very dynamic city. So imagine fine-grained urbanism as similar to fine-grained sandpaper. There, And imagine each grain of sand is sort of a building, right? Mm -hmm. So in fine-grained urbanism, there's a lot of buildings, but they're smaller. And in coarse-grained urbanism, there might be a similar density, but there's very few buildings and they're much larger. And the human experience you get from fine-grained urbanism, as you walk sort of the same distance of one block, uh, you will experience many more buildings, many more designs, many more uses of different buildings, and many more tenants of different buildings, various different storefronts, and lots of different types of people and uses really mixing 24-7. And that's very different from current models of urban development, which often will create the same density and shape as traditional urbanism, but they will sort of fill an entire block with one large building. And if you pay attention to the dynamic next to those buildings versus the old urbanism, you'll see that there's a lot less activity, it's less vibrant because there's too much sameness. So there are less things to sort of experience per capita. Yes. I like the word you use, sameness. Go back to Learning from Las Vegas. I really recommend my audience to read this book, and we should definitely do a, a book club episode. That book was published, if I remember correctly, in the 1970s. It was before the opening of the Mirage. The Mirage opened in 1989. So the book Learning from Las Vegas was really about the older casinos, like the Desert Inn, the Sands, the Flamingo, and the Caesars Palace, but not about the current mega resorts that we see today on the Strip. But I think the same concept still applies to today's modern Las Vegas. It's, you know, each building is very unique, it's different. So that book, Okay, I have to finish reading that book and then, and then we have to do a book club episode and I will invite BK to be a guest as well. So three of us do a mini episode about that book. For sure, that sounds like a lot of fun. And those same ideas are very relevant outside of Las Vegas as well. If you have a, a block-sized site in a city like, let's say, New York or Chicago or Boston or Philadelphia or wherever you're working in a walkable, dense urban setting. And if you're looking to create a place that is uh, more appealing because it seems more dynamic and interesting and creative and fun, if you incorporate the idea of fine-grained urbanism into your developments and, and designs, uh, you can create places that have uh, more varied and dynamic experiences because that have more varied and dynamic experiences because within the same distance and area, there are more things to experience essentially.
So there's a lot of value to that design idea. Baxter, have you heard of an architect called Stefan Ah? I haven't. So he published a book about Las Vegas. Of course, that that's how I found out about him. Or not a book. I think an academic paper. It's called "The Strip: Las Vegas and the Architecture of the American Dream." I think I'm still on chapter two of this book, but I will finish it. Or I think I already finished it. I'm not sure. But one of the session within his book, he talked about there's a phase where Las Vegas Strip 1.0, all of those low-rise casinos got demolished, and then the modern Las Vegas Strip, you know, the Bellagio. Mirage, Mandalay Bay, all of these are unique projects. But in between these two time period, so the Mirage opened in 1989. And before that, the previous casino that opened was in 1973, the MGM Grand. It was called the MGM Grand at the time. And later they renamed it to the Bally's Casino. So between these two openings, 16, 17 years, there was no brand new casino development on the strip because it was the time when FBI was cracking down on organized crimes. So all of the mobs left the Las Vegas Strip and Las Vegas Strip 1.0 version, all of those small little casinos were built by mob monies. And without those type of financing, you know, and they didn't want to build any more casino on the Strip. They took their money, they left the Strip by Las Vegas. It was also a period when the corporate act about gambling, which allowed corporations to invest, to own and operate a casino, and the shareholders of the corporation don't need to own a gaming license and don't need to go through the investigation and background check to get a gaming license. So... Corporations like Houghton and Dell Webb entered the Las Vegas Strip market at the time. So it was the time when corporations took over the strip, the mobs left, and corporations are just not very creative. So between the 16, 17 years, they just couldn't, they didn't build anything new. They simply just added hotel towers like copy and paste, you know, expansion, expanded existing casinos. So they did that for 16, 17 years. And in Stefan's academic paper, he called it the corporatization of the Las Vegas Strip at the time. And then he said the architecture was like, you know, it's the same thing, you know, the hotel towers, you're not being innovated. You just copy and paste, you just expanded the existing casino. So it was not a very fun period for architects at that time. And then until, you know, the Mirage opening, it was a mega resort with a volcano in front and everybody was amazed by wow this is so creative so it's just a little side story interesting to hear it especially because i'm not as familiar with las vegas as you are don't worry about it baxter i'm (laughs) very familiar about your city as well but when you come to las vegas i can give you an architecture tour of the las vegas strip there are a lot of interesting development stories behind each hotel and if you understand the history i like in my podcast i always tell my audience that we have to understand the history of the city then you will understand why is this hotel looks this way why is it performing this way And if you look at some of the hotels on the Strip, a few of them, they have similar style. 
you know, you know, like the, the Mirage, the Bellagio, Wien and Encore, why do they all have these indoor mini gardens inside? Why is the interior design kind of feel the same Italian French vibe? Because they were built the same developer and the interior designer. They're under different ownerships right now, different corporate ownership, but if you understand the history, you'll have a much deeper understanding of these hotels. Yeah. For sure, definitely. History is very important. Mm-hmm. Great. And what is the next topic? Let me go check our agenda on Instagram. This is this is the way we do our <laughs> podcast. We don't even have the agenda on email. We have it on Instagram. I, I've, I've got the the next sort of topic Good. here that I was I was interested in discussing. So the next really important piece. Of, of quality urbanism that I really incorporate into my work is all about sustainability. Yeah. This can be environmental sustainability, social sustainability, economic sustainability. And the first piece of this has to do with transportation emissions. When people think of sustainable, I don't think the first place that they think of is necessarily Manhattan. But Manhattan is one of the places with the lowest environmental impact per capita in the entire United States because land use and transportation emissions are so low per capita and it really concentrates resources to a point where each person uh, can live with uh, less energy and land usage. So that's a first piece of it. But another important piece of sustainability in terms of environmental, social, and economic concerns has to do with has to do with land use. And when you spread out a city over a larger area of land, you're going to need more infrastructure per capita. You're going to need more miles of roads, the distance that public transportation and the distance people are going to have to drive is going to be longer. There's going to be more miles of pipes and wires and various other things that take a lot of money to build, but also take a lot of money to maintain. So if you want communities and developments that are are more sustainable, then you have to be very efficient with how you build infrastructure because eventually you're going to have to repair and maintain it. And you can minimize that cost by building dense traditional urbanism There's a reason that before the 20th century, that almost every community from the size of a small village up to a large city was largely compact and very walkable and and very dense. It's because it, it takes less resources and there's economic advantages as well. And that's still very important today. And those ideas about sustainability tie a lot into the third topic that I had, which is resilience. And this links a lot back to the idea of fine-grained urbanism that I was discussing earlier, where if you want to create resilient communities, first of all, because of uh, the infrastructure concerns that I was discussing, dense urbanism really can save a lot of money and resources and land. But additionally, within urban places of similar densities, fine-grained developments are 
much more resilient for really three main reasons. The first of those has to do with the diversification of real estate portfolios and places. When you have smaller uh, buildings and a larger number of them, you have uh, a more liquid portfolio, a place can be more adaptive, and many more uh, stakeholders can uh, take ownership in a community. And it really builds in a a lot of flexibility and backups any difficulties that places and and companies might face in terms of real estate. And then a, a second piece of this resilience has to do with the economies of agglomeration, which basically can create extra productivity through density because people are in a closer environment together, collaborating and having random knowledge spillovers with people that they aren't directly collaborating with. And they can also continue these efficiencies of idea exchanges outside of normal business hours and ideas and business really thrive in dense environments. But this is even more true for uh, fine-grained urbanism, which creates more flexibility and creativity and within neighborhoods and cities, essentially um, creating more diverse knowledge spillovers. And what you essentially um, get from uh, fine-grained urban places as compared to coarse-grained urban places is that the fine-grained urban places are often a better setting for creative thinking and and startup companies because the physical structure of the place allows for better creativity through its diversity. And then there's issue of economies of agglomeration extends to uh, retail as well. The paper that I'm working on that I briefly mentioned earlier cites another paper that shows that fine-grained urban settings have uh, much more profitable and successful street retail than coarse-grained settings, which you definitely uh, see a bit of that in New York City, where the neighborhoods with the best street retail and the most creativity are really the most fine-grained of the neighborhoods, such as Soho, for example, which has a uh, much smaller buildings, much more chopped up street grid than much of the rest of the city. And not only is this setting good for fostering creativity, but it also, due to its inherent creativity, uh, is very attractive to creatives themselves who are looking to move. And if you have businesses operating in a neighborhood with a lot of fine-grained urbanism, such as, for example, Chelsea instead of Midtown, then it's a very attractive environment that appeals for relocation for uh, creatives, which is great for successive communities and and businesses and the sort of real estate behind that. And and then a third piece has to do with times of crisis. So in the pandemic, I did some digging around in data and uh, determined that neighborhoods with more fine-grained urbanism were seeing lower lower increases in business vacancies as the pandemic went on because these neighborhoods are more adaptable and they have better balances between uh, various use types 
that really makes them more resilient and weather through crisis in a much more uh, sustainable way. Baxter, when is your current paper going to be published? I'm not sure yet. It's not like in the complete final draft form yet, but I will definitely let you know once it is uh, published. It's been a long project. I've been working on it for since like the end of last fall. So it's, it's dragged on a bit, but I'm looking forward to getting these ideas and data sources out there. Yes. Once it's published, please let me know. And then we can do another episode and you can present your paper in that episode. Uh, you know, I feel like I'm being a slacking millennial, like all of these smart people like you and DK, you guys all have papers, publications to talk about. And I just talk about random stuff about mobs. <laughs> being too hard on yourself. <laughs> Awkward silence. <laughs> um, so, oh, I have a question about fine grid and coarse grid. That reminds me. So I just toured the art district in downtown Las Vegas this week. And because the city is doing an infrastructure project, there's tons of world construction going on. They added bus lines on there. That just reminds me of the art district because it was 110 degree in Las Vegas, summertime, but there were people walking on the street to go into these retail stores like art galleries, coffee shops, flower shops, like all of these fun stuff. So yeah, I think the city is trying to really make it good. Yeah, that's great to see. I am slightly familiar with the arts district of Las Vegas. Um, not sure how I'm familiar with that, but I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Instead of creating, you know, large block sized, you know, retail establishments that are just one retailer all across. That's not as exciting as, you know, within the same size block, you might have an art gallery and, you know, three retail spaces and a couple of restaurants. Like it, it makes the space much more interesting and varied by chopping it up into smaller pieces. And I took off my AirPods and the background noise is gone. So it was my problem, not <laughs> yours. <laughs> Thank you so much, Baxter. Anything else that you would like to add before we finish this episode? Because we have, I have to go to the gym soon. <laughs> and then we are already over an hour of recording. So um... yeah, I th think um, maybe there's... Maybe there's one last thing I want to do. I'm, yeah. I'm pulling up a couple of images. And you can click share screen so we can see it on the screen exactly. too. Exactly. So now that I've... Actually, I'm going to wait until I have these images ready. Sorry, this is taking a bit. Oh, don't worry about it. I'm in Las Vegas time zone. Everything is slower than the East Coast. Don't you like doing podcasts like this, though? I think it also helps with your presentation and public speaking skills. Yeah, so it has been um, very helpful for that. I finally found the images I was looking for, so I'm mm -hmm. going to share that yeah. and quickly talk through mm -hmm. some of the images from my yeah. thesis project and sort of where the idea is talking about play. And so in, in this image here, 
uh, you can see this district that I've designed. Well, I've designed most of it. There's a couple of buildings here and there already exist in this image, but I've designed it in a way where those, there's a lot of uh, smaller pieces and they're arranged in a very irregular way that still creates a very well-defined public space. So there's many more destinations within the same distance walk, and there's enough, there's enough uh, density to support all those destinations. And additionally, you have these irregular uh, shaped spaces that you can walk through as you walk around this corner that you see up ahead that you'll start to discover new things that are hidden behind that corner. And there's lots of different layers to create the uh, picturesque and parallax effects that I was speaking about earlier. You have the same idea. I'm going to flip through some of these until I find one of the images that I was looking for. Same idea in this one. In this image, you get to the end of the street. It turns into a pedestrian space. And there is the main public space of the neighborhood I've designed off in the distance. But it's off in the distance tilted slightly to the left where you're going to have new pieces of that space slowly revealed as you walk around that corner. And these same effects also work um, at the scale of building details. So if I zoom into some of these building details, you'll see there's a lot of detail in some of these buildings. And those de details are dimensional and intricate. And, and as you get closer to those buildings, you can perceive more details. So your perception of the buildings change. And additionally, when those uh, details pop off of the facade by a few inches or a few feet, their relationship to the wall surface behind them visually changes as your angle of viewing towards those items changes, which isn't the case with a more flat exterior wall. So uh, the trees also kind of to that same effect as you walk past the trees, new things about the space are revealed. Yet within all of this sort of mystery as you're moving through the space, an important thing is visibility, which is very important for creating a very social community-focused environment that's very safe. You don't want hidden or tucked away corners. You want to create a continuous wall around the edge of the block so that there's a level of security and you know there's no unsafe surprises ahead. You have similar things when you get to this space. This is sort of what you see as you turn around that corner, the tower that you see on the left of the image is, is suddenly revealed. And the pedestrian is interested to keep walking through the space because as they keep moving forward, new things are revealed. And I don't know Las Vegas too well, but I do know that the designers of a lot of those spaces there, you know, despite it not being quite as pedestrian of the city as as the, the ones I'm looking to, the designers of those spaces there are really focusing on having you uh, discover new things around every, around every turn. And that's the same idea as this. It works in urban space and your neighborhood or development or whatever you're designing isn't going to be as appealing or as valuable if you don't uh, take into account that very human-centric element of discovery that really appeals to uh, our senses and human nature.
you can read my mind. When you were showing that street retail street picture, two things pop up in my mind. The first one is a retail street in Miami. And then the second thing is Las Vegas casinos. When you say you wanted to discover all of the corners and you make the turns and you discover new things. I, I wanted to say that and you can read my mind. Baxter, good job. Thanks. <laughs> Thank yeah, it's, it's definitely an idea that you know, spans across all types of designs and uh, all types of urban designs, ranging all the way from things that look sort of reminiscent of the old like this, or whether you're designing something completely different, it really creates a lot of value and interest. Yep. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. I really like this very last part. I like the visual and I like how we both thought of Las Vegas at the same time. Thank you. I enjoyed sharing that last part as well. Thank you. And so do you want people to go to your website to check out more of your papers? Do you want me to put your website in the show notes or do you want people to connect with you on LinkedIn? How do people yeah, that, check out that would all That would all be fantastic. My website is baxterhankin.com. And you can see more of this project and other projects there as well as design ideas behind those projects. And, you know, whenever I get around to publishing that paper, that will be up there too. There's a walkthrough video of this entire project, right? Sort of talk through a lot of the same ideas mm -hmm. um, that I've discussed in this podcast. Many of the ideas I'm, I'm sure you might seem familiar to you as you watch that walkthrough mm -hmm. in advance of this. So, yeah. And when you publish that paper, we should definitely do another episode. And we need to do another episode about the book club, learning from Las Vegas, and maybe another episode with DK about that urban planning book that I don't remember the name. The Life and Death of Great American Cities uh, by Jane Jacobs. Um, yes. Okay. I'm going to remember uh, it. I'm going to remember for it. For those in New York City, uh, Jane Jacobs, I... For the many years that she was uh, living in New York City, mostly lived in the West Village. Mm -hmm. Okay, so and there are three episodes that we have to do. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming to the show today. I really enjoyed recording this episode with you. And I learned a lot from your presentation. Thank you so much. Thanks. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Bye. Bye. <laughs>